Today I want to start with a question that Jesus is going to challenge us out of Luke 9 today with. What distracts you, though, sometimes from serving God? What distracts you from living for God and following Jesus sometimes? So I'm going to actually ask, ask you to respond, you know, sentences, phrases. What can be distracting to our walk with God? Games, okay. Trials. Kids, work, so busy schedules and, and hustle, bustle, going here and there. And, and we get to the end of the day and we're like, what happened to the day? Entertainment. Trust. Can we trust God? Is that where lots of things happen? Min- ministry? Ministry, if we um, have the, uh, the wrong reason for that? Family drama. I don't think that ever happens with anyone in this room. Unless they're people with families. <laughs> um, yeah. One more. There was one more I missed over here. Ourselves. Yeah, and sometimes our love for self and our, our commitment to self distract us from the kingdom, distract us from serving. Jesus today, as, as, as we approach the text, he's going to confront us with what it means to follow him. And how do we minimize distractions? And he's actually going to confront distractions or excuses people have to follow him. On Friday, I had an opportunity to speak at, at chapel at Covenant Christian, and I actually I double-dipped and used part of this text for that chapel. I'm like, hey, I'm already studying it. But I did an illustration with them that I'm not going to do with you, but I'm going to tell you about it. I had set up around the room a number of distractions that would be per- particular to kids, and I asked for some volunteers, and I had about 15 of the, the students with me, and I told them, the thing that you're supposed to do is follow me, Okay. Do whatever I do, follow me, and let's see what happens. And, and so we, we started walking down the center island through some other people, and I had a little maze set up, and they all did great. And then we got to the back of the room by the sound table, and I had given the sound men uh, a couple packs of Pokemon cards. <laughs> yeah. And I just said, as I walk by with the kids, offer them free cards and see what happens. And, and so I'm walking by, and, and I'm doing some things along the way. So in that case, the guy that was back there, I shook his hand and um, just to see if any of the kids would do that. But he starts offering free cards, and boom, what I had done was completely gone, okay? There was nobody shaking his hands. There was this mass around the table. I just keep walking. And I look back, and there's hardly anyone behind me, maybe one or two of the, the 15, 20 kids, and that's okay. They all of a sudden realize I'm, I'm up ahead. They had all got their free card. And, and so they ran after me. And the next person I passed was Susie, who had a box of donuts. <laughs> Cruel. I almost did the donut thing this morning with a sign that says, please do not take and see how many were gone by the time we got to the sermon. Um, but, um, and, and again, and, and I had turned and waved to her. None of the students did that because there were donuts. And donuts were the big thing. And so, so I get up front, and there's two students with me. And, and I'm looking back, and they're all still around Susie because donuts apparently are more important than me. And, and they finally come up, and they're eating their donuts and holding their cards. They're just excited. Look what we got! And they're telling their friends. And, and I had an opportunity to say, okay, you were supposed to follow me, right? Yeah, yeah, Pastor Ron, follow you. You're supposed to do what I did, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, did I eat a donut? 
And you saw some of them sort of put their donuts down. <laughs> or a couple swallow really fast. And they're like, oh, no. I said, did I get a Pokemon card? And they start handing me their cards. I'm like. <laughs> the point was, there were things that were distracting and things that appealed to them more than following me. And that's okay, because following me isn't that big of a deal. But what we're going to see in the text today, this is about following Jesus. And Jesus is saying nothing, not even donuts and Pokemon cards, are more important than following him. Except he's going to use things that are maybe more dear to you and I as adults than donuts and Pokemon cards. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We're going to be looking at, at 12 verses today, 51 to 62. As Jesus continues to expound and and illustrate what it means to follow him and the commitment required to say we're a follower of Christ. And I know going into this text, there's some challenging things and, and I know none of us are perfect. We are all in process. But in process means we're working on these things and we're working to minimize these distractions. We're working to have the right priority. The background here, the first nine chapters, we did our reading service last week. Um, the first nine chapters were Jesus's ministry in the Galilee and up north and really showing who he is, showing that he's the Messiah. And, and Luke made a case that you really can't deny either he's the Messiah or, you're, or, or he's not because he's claiming to be. And so either he's lying or he's the Messiah and we have to choose whether to follow him. So now in the next section of the book, the the second book of the trilogy, if you will, the the travel chronicles, we see Jesus now turning his face from the north, from the Galilee, and he's going to turn toward Jerusalem. Now we're going to cover 10 chapters of this journey. And so he didn't just go straight the three-day journey um, from, from Galilee to Jerusalem. He's ministering along the way because his goal is to show his disciples what he's here for. He already showed who he was. Now, what is he here for? What did he come to do? And he's going to challenge them with, if you follow me, that's your mission too. And this is what you're to be about. Don or, or um, Jeremiah, if you put up the map slide. Sorry, I'm, I'm a little out of order. Next one. So in the map slide up north, you see in the familiar map of Israel, up north you see the Galilee. And that's where everything in Luke has taken place so far. And he's crisscrossed the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum in the upper left, and hit a number of those towns. Well, now we're going to get to Samaria in this story, which is about halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea on the west side of Israel. I know you can't read any of those names, but um, it's, it's right about in the middle. You see Mount Gerizim, that's close to where the story today is going to take place. And so we see his ministry moving down because Jerusalem is down here at the bottom, just to the left of the Dead Sea, up in the mountains is Jerusalem. And so Jesus is heading to Jerusalem because that is where his purpose is going to be fulfilled. And that is where he is going to give his life willingly on the cross for our sins in our place. That is where God is going to raise him from the dead on the third day. And that is where he will ascend into heaven. And so Jesus now is on mission. He is on task in his time and his way. And so we we come to this text and the first section here talks about Jesus, Jesus now is talking about his ministry in Samaria and, and he deals with some attitudes in Samaria. And point number one in your notes is to be on the road with Jesus. And this whole section is about being on the road with Jesus. To be on the road with Jesus, we must learn to be counterculturally merciful. 
We must learn to be counterculturally merciful. We have to learn to have astounding mercy if we're a follower of God. There are no excuses to not have that. And, and we're going to see as Jesus deals with some of the excuses. To be counterculturally merciful like Jesus was. We'll start with verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And this is the transition sentence in Luke where we go from, from the Galilean ministry now to, to traveling and setting his face to Jerusalem. But it's, it's talking about here, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, the wording there, that word is almost always used of the ascension of Christ. And so Luke here is saying he's about to fulfill his purpose. He's about to fulfill his ministry. And the time has come. Remember, up until this point, Jesus kept saying, don't tell anyone who I am. Don't tell anyone what I've done. It's because God is sovereignly controlling the time of the cross. He is sovereignly controlling his plan. None of this is by accident. Praise God. None of it in our lives is by accident either. And so he is controlling that, and the time has come. And so he's going to be taken up, his ascension, but that's preceded by the cross and the resurrection. And he set his face to go to Jerusalem. What a great word picture. We sometimes set our face to do things, right? And what that means is we have a resolve to do things, a resolute focus. New American Standard uses the word determined. NIV uses the word resolutely. ESV, set your face towards it. And all of those things help us understand the term here. And, and by the way, you don't have to know Greek to study God's word. A great tool is just to read a verse in several different translations. You'll almost always get the word sense and the idea there. And so he set his face to go do this. You know, some of you with kids, your kids sometimes set their face to, to do some task, not usually chores, but set their face to play some video game or to go be with their friends. And you know, when they get that idea in their head, you can't get it out of their head all day. When are we going to do this? When are we going to do this? When are we going to do this? For the 200th time. It will be such, and, and you know, so we can get frustrated, but that's the idea of setting your face to something. And so when we read that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, he intentionally and willingly chose to pursue a path that would give his life for our sins. That is huge. And that is what Jesus is modeling for his disciples, the sacrifice of what it means to be on mission for Christ. He's going to suffer and he's going to die. And for the next 10 chapters, we're going to see the travel of the king. If we had the fellowship of the king, anyway, um, we're going to see the travel of the king to, to Jerusalem. Interesting, Luke has so many little Easter eggs to Isaiah, little snippets that remind us of, uh, of Isaiah, which is why I wanted to study Luke right after Isaiah. In Isaiah 50, verse 7, it says, But the Lord, and it's talking about the servant, which is the Messiah says, but the Lord Yahweh helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. And this is the, the words of the Messiah. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. Same idea. He's Luke here, and actually Jesus through his words, and then Luke through his writing, is referring back to the Messiah Easter eggs that are in Isaiah. This is the Messiah. Jesus is going to follow God's will no matter where it leads no matter what happens, even if it's suffering and death. So we go on to the story, 52 through 56, give us the first episode of our text this morning. 
And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of of Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. And so in the scene, we see the first illustration of Jesus teaching his disciples a little bit about mercy. Because it seems like there was some mercy lacking there. And in, 30, in 52 there, and he sent messengers ahead of them. And they're probably going to make preparations. They have a group of people. They need some food. They need a place to stay for the night. So, um, Samaria would have been one of the paths from the Galilee to Jerusalem. In fact, it would have been the most direct path. And some Jews would avoid it. Because if you remember from the past, Samaritans and Jews hated each other. And, and I don't say that like my kids or your kids use the word hate. They despised each other. And and if you go back to the history, the Samaritans came about, most scholars and most historians think they came about after the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom and the Assyrians had taken the best people away. One of the the strategies of Assyria, if you remember from Isaiah, is they would bring in some of their own people to settle the land. And so they didn't have to take everyone out if they could conquer the ideas and philosophies and culture of the land. And so they brought their people in and the Assyrians and some other people they had conquered came in and intermarried with the Jews, the Israelites that were there. And so this group became, they were called half-breeds at the time. They were called dogs. They were just all kinds of things. They were hated by the Jews because they were unclean and had compromised with the, the enemy. And, and over time and over generations, that hatred stayed. In fact, I would, I would venture to say it festered and grew to the point where the Samaritans now wouldn't go to Jerusalem to worship. They built their own um, place of worship on Mount Gerizim in their, in their area, and they refused to go to Jerusalem. And at times, they would prevent Jews from going to Jerusalem. And so when, when it says that they, they saw his face was turned toward Jerusalem, and so they refused to help him, they actually aren't thinking, oh, we're not going to let Jesus go to the cross. They're thinking, we're not going to let this Jew go worship in Jerusalem. Because the Samaritans also hated the Jews. And so we have just a a cross-cultural experience here with people that are despised, people that are outcasts that no one would go to. Jesus is already breaking the norm by taking his disciples through there. And now they refuse. And they refuse the Messiah. And so this feud comes to a head, especially in the minds of James and John. Remember what James and John are sometimes called? Sons of thunder. Today's story sort of lets us know why. One of the reasons. In 53, the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Again, that same wording from 51. I, I love Luke's writing. It's filled with so much nuance. Jesus' face is set to Jerusalem. I'm not going to help him. So when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Hey, they're opposing you, Jesus. Now's our chance. Let's call down fire. You know, John say, hey, James, get the marshmallows and chocolate. We're having s'mores tonight. And, And they're calling down God's judgment on this people. Now, they have just been out on their missions journey and they've experienced God's power and maybe that's gone to their head a little bit. We saw that in in the story with the the demon-possessed boy that they couldn't cast it out. 
But the problem is, is they're trying to exercise power without mercy. And power without mercy never works. Not even today. Not, not if you're a boss, not if you're a father. Power without mercy is disastrous. And they're just wanting to, to roast them. They've sinned. They've opposed us. And their first thought is judgment. Is that Jesus' first thought with us? I hope not, because we'd all be dead. Jesus' first thought with us is mercy, is the gospel, is his love and care for us. Do you remember when he sent out the 12 in pairs, the mission that it was his mission that he passed on? Preach the gospel and, and help the people or love the people. Those were the two parts of the mission. There wasn't even a third one that said call fire down on the people. But that's where they went with it. And we do the same thing. Before we get too hard on them, I mean, we, we love to jump to judgment. Now, who hasn't wanted God to, to bring his lightning down on the car in front of you on the road sometimes? And maybe move it. I mean, we, we yell at people. We get upset at people. Someone offends us. And we want to jump to being harsh with them and, and just bringing down the hammer. And that's not a godly attitude. Now, is there a place for judgment? Yes. Is there a time for judgment? Yes. But number one, that's never our first thought. That's not where you start. Number two, that's the role of the Holy Spirit and God the Father. And they do pretty well at it. But we so many times think we're little gods and we need to go around teaching people a lesson. And I say that sometimes. My wife's like, you say that. I'm going to teach him a lesson when I'm angry. And that's not from God. Because ultimately, that's not my job. Now, 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 yes, we have to understand that as we move through the sequence God has said when we have a brother in sin, eventually we come to some pretty hard realities of confronting that sin. But it's always out of a heart of bringing them back to God and a heart of mercy. And yes, as we think through this, it's not talking about governments. Governments are instituted by God to protect the people, and so they need to enforce the laws. But this is talking one-on-one as we go about as followers of Christ. Are we on mission to preach the gospel and love the people, or are we about bringing down fire and brimstone on them? I can just imagine the other disciples. Maybe the other disciples were, were... we're watching this. Maybe Peter was off to the side saying, oh, I'm glad it wasn't me this time. <laughs> but they want to use their newfound power for retribution to give action to their anger. As we think through these stories, there's distractions that Jesus is confronting. And the distraction that he's con- confronting here is an anger and a frustration with people. And we can get so focused on that that we, we lose sight, that, that gets in the way of us following Christ and being on mission. You know, this undoubtedly the disciples were thinking of Elijah. And, and I don't know if you remember the story of Elijah and the king sends 50 guys to come capture him and stop his ministry. And he does call fire down on them. Actually, he says, if I'm a man of God and if, if God wants, he, he'll, he'll consume you with fire. Poof. It happened a couple times. And so maybe they're referring to that and maybe they're thinking about that, but they missed the mission Jesus called them to. And the way we know that is the very next verse, 55. But he, being Jesus, turned and rebuked them. And the word for rebuke there is an intense rebuke. It's not just, oh, don't do that. 
It wasn't very nice. No, it's an intense rebuke that basically says, no, that is not our way. And they move on to another village. I don't know what Jesus was feeling at that point. But I bet his heart was a little broken. Because he's just spent three years teaching these men. he's, He's spent time over and over saying things like, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Do good to those who treat you poorly. And they get one of their first tests and it's gone. Oh, how we need to remember this. Before we get too full of ourselves and want to condemn and to judge, your neighbor that is frustrating you, your coworker that is frustrating you, the answer isn't so much the hammer as it is Jesus. And they need the gospel. And they need someone that's willing to step out and share that with them. There's only so much hate that Jesus is going to tolerate between the Jews and Samaritans. It's why he uses the Samaritans as as heroes in stories. It's why we do see the Samaritans reached later. But their sense of special authority without compassion, without mercy, was dangerous. And so Jesus confronts them. I, I think of that in a culture where we are seeing more and more opposition to Christianity. More and more opposition to the church. And, and we can get so angry at some of these things, and many times with a righteous anger, and rightfully so, but then we react out of anger, and we lash out, and, and, and the internet is horrible for this, and you've heard me talk about this, because we're in the anonymity of our computer screens, and we say things we would never say to somebody in person. And we destroy the credibility of our Lord and Savior. I was on les- online yesterday and watching a stream of things and watching a, a believer try to interact with some non-believers. They ended up calling them stupid and ignorant, and it just it it, de- it degraded so fast. And finally, at the end of that, someone who wasn't a believer said, "You know what? You've just sort of proven that Christians are idiots." And I'm not saying we shouldn't stand for what we believe. We've talked about this. But can we do it in a winsome way that puts mercy and caring for others above our need to be right and to bring the hammer on those people? Because that's the heart of Jesus. Just think of how this might apply to politics. (laughs) Maybe we don't want to. The senator you're upset at. The president you're upset at. The representative you might be upset at. How do we handle that? One other way of application. If I can talk to the dads here for a minute. Dads, fathering your family is a precious trust that God has given us. And it is a difficult trust that God has given us. And, and as men so often, our tendency, mine included, is when our, when our kids defy us and when we see rebellion, we just jump to the hammer. And we, and we jump that now. I'm not saying we don't discipline. We absolutely need to discipline. We absolutely need to confront. But that discipline needs to be matched with mercy and compassion. 
if they feel that we are disciplined, if our family feels that we just get angry at the drop of a hat and we lash out and they don't see that mercy and compassion, they are seeing a false view of God that will impact them the rest of their lives. So dad, stand firm. Teach your kids, instruct them, discipline them. But do that with the mercy and grace of God at the same time. Don't do that out of anger. Your kids know it and they see it and you will leave them in your wake. Let's not abuse the power God has given us as dads. Because you have power. Your kids look up to you. How will you use it? If we're on the road with Jesus, we must be merciful and forgiving. And Jesus confronts that in James and John for everyone to see. And then we move to the second section of this morning's text and we see three different men come to Jesus. Two of them come to Jesus. One Jesus goes to. And and it's all with the theme of follow me. What does it mean to follow me? And so we get to verse 57 and it says, as they were going along the road, and again, if we're to to be on the road with Jesus, that's what this section is about. As we're going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, Now just think about that for a minute. He walks up and says, you know what, Jesus, I'm here. Wherever you're going, I'm going. And Jesus has just said, I'm going to suffer and die. I don't think this person heard that. Or they under, I don't think they understood it. What he he was asking, he had no idea what it meant. And, and, And Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be crucified. He is going in a way where he has given up all of his homes, a home and, and a place to stay and food to eat and comfort. And so that first point, or point number two, the, this whole second section is Jesus is going to talk about a radical commitment of what it means to follow him. And he's going to take this incident where someone comes and says, I'll follow you wherever. And he's going to be again to teach us what does it mean to follow him? You know, we're all here this morning. Most of you are here this morning because you want to follow Christ. So what does that mean? And it's far more radical than what we want to think it means. It requires a radical commitment that puts him above all else, all other relationships, all other needs, all other desires. That's what it means to follow him. And so this first story, letter A there, we must be committed to give up the easy and the comfortable and embrace hardships. We must be committed to give up the easy and the comfortable and embrace hardships. Look at how Jesus answers him. In 58, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And Jesus here is is saying, Okay, you want to follow me? Here's an example of what it means. Foxes have homes. Birds have homes. I've got nothing. Don't know where I'm staying tonight. Don't know how I'm going to get my next meal. Are you willing to give up security and ease and comfort to follow me? Now, in each of these three stories and confrontations by Jesus, we don't know the answer. We don't know if this guy said, okay. We don't know if he walked away. The the, the common theme here is, though, I will follow you. What does it mean to follow Christ? 
And, and the wording for follow there is to, means to come behind someone and copy what they do. To come behind, to come after, and to mimic what they do. And so it is a lot like playing follow the leader. Discipleship and following Christ is follow the leader. You look at him and what he did. That's the example with the kids at, at the chapel that I spoke at. They got so distracted that they stopped looking at what I was doing. And they messed up. So when we follow Jesus, that means we have our eyes so intently focused on him that we will copy whatever he does. That implies we see it, that we know it. In fact, disciples of the time would often literally walk behind their rabbi in their footsteps because they were so committed and they would, they would eat the same food and stay at the same place. They were so committed to copying the rabbi. And that's the image that Jesus is using. But he's saying it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be comfortable. There's going to be hardships. Remember, he's on his way to the cross. And so his advertisement for, for following him, and I think Pastor AJ mentioned this too, his, and, and we're going to see it like three or four more times in Luke. His advertisement is, come follow me and life will be horrible and you'll suffer and die. And there. But Jesus is realistic about what it means to follow him. What it means to count the cost. Be a great time for a story about a building in Garden Grove, but I think that one's been used. <laughs> the first section is about mercy. This section is about commitment. What does it mean to be committed to following Christ? Following Christ is never an easy and flippant decision. If someone comes and says, you know what, I've accepted Christ in my heart, life's going to be great. We need to talk more. Because Jesus promised suffering. He promised hardships. What's interesting is as believers, do we experience the lack of comfort? Do we experience hardship here? Or do we chase and, and maybe make an idol of comfort and ease and security? Are we comfortable in a world that we should never be comfortable in? that should disturb us every time we turn on the news and every story we hear because this is a fallen Genesis 3 world. We should feel homeless here because this isn't our home. But yet we chase things to try to be comfortable here and to be entertained and to be happy because that's the American way. No, let's be disturbed. One author said, there will be dissonance, discomfort, unease, and rejection. And if that's not there, we're not following Christ. That is a bold statement, but I believe a true statement. So I'm calling you to a life that is insecure, that doesn't have comfort, that isn't easy. Because we're willing to be on task for the mission. We're willing to stand up and tell people about Christ. We're willing to give our possessions and our time for the kingdom of God instead of building great homes. Or houses, rather. That discomfort is out of step with modern culture. Who wants the next greatest thing. Or a culture that prizes experience over all else right now. 
and is willing to go into debt and pay all kinds of money for the perfect experiences. Time and, and financial resources that could have been used for the kingdom. This is radical. What if we don't get the next thing that would make our family happy and use it instead to support a missionary that's sharing the gospel? Or better yet, to go ourselves and visit a missionary. We must be committed to following Christ and embracing those hardships, to give up the easy and the comfortable. This is always a decision when we go on missions trips. And are we willing to give up safety for the gospel? Are we willing to trust Jesus to teach our kids that we're on mission? I challenge you parents with that, to think about that. Think about what you're teaching your children about the power of God as we pursue security and ease. But this isn't the only guy that comes to Jesus. Actually, the next one, Jesus goes to him in 59. To another, he said, follow me. Again, do exactly what I do. Be like me. And the man said, but he said, Lord, let me go first. Let me first go and bury my father. Seems like a reasonable request especially in in a culture where where honoring your father and mother and burying your father was a huge deal. In fact, the eldest son, that was their responsibility. If they didn't go and do a proper burial, it was considered shameful on the whole family. And this was a huge deal. So he said, "Let let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And these are hard verses. How how do we understand this? Is Jesus saying not to care about family? Is he saying not to care about your father? Not to take your, your responsibilities seriously? And I would argue that he's, he's not so much saying that as saying there's an urgent priority on the kingdom of God that must trump all else. And so let her be there. We must be committed to make Jesus our urgent priority over family relationships and obligations. And before you start sending the emails, send them to Jesus. Because these are his words and they're hard and they confront us. But he's saying Jesus needs to be a priority over family. If you follow Jesus, he is a priority over family. Now, Now don't just tune out. Don't just walk out. Hear me out and, and understand what's going on here. There's a sense here that, that the, the word urgent is one of the, the key words to understand here. Let me go first and, and, and bury my father. It's hard to understand what that means. Now we're like, well, no, no, go bury your father. There's actually three different major views of what he's saying here. The first is that his father just died and he needs to go take care of the preparations. Because in, in Jewish culture, you had one day to bury the dead. That, that same day, actually, you needed to take care of preparations and bury him. But the, the issue here is priority. And the guy is saying, Jesus, well, Jesus has said, follow me. He disobeys and says, no, I have something else I need to do. At that point, that's a statement of priorities. When we choose one thing over another, we are making a statement of priorities. And so for him, he is prioritizing his father over an urgent call by Jesus to share the gospel with people. And so, so that's part of the sense here. 
There's a couple of other things bury, the, bury my father might mean. The, the second one is it, it never says his father's dead. And there's a, a, an argument, a, a powerful argument that says the man wouldn't have been there listening to Jesus if his father had died that day because he would have been doing preparations. And so chances are that one of the interpretations is he's saying, my dad's going to die soon. I'll follow you after it's taken care of. And there's a delay here. There's some procrastination here. I'll follow you when it's right. And Jesus is saying, follow me now. Follow me now. Another option, I said there were three. Some people, one of the other things in Jewish culture is, is when a person died, you buried them in a tomb and that for a year. And then a year later you came, and not to be gross, but you got the bones back out of that because that's all that would be left after a year. And you put them in a box and, and with your, the rest of your family bones. And maybe he was talking about that. All of those to say he's, he has a different priority than the urgency of the kingdom. He doesn't get that. His assumption is family comes before Jesus. And Jesus' assumption is that Jesus in the mission comes first. And so when he says, leave the dead to bury their own dead, now obviously he's not into zombie movies and not assuming that the dead are going to get up and bury the other dead. He's probably talking, let the spiritually dead handle this. It can be taken care of by others that don't have the same urgent priority. And so let them handle that and you come. And the way we know that is in that last verse or in in the verse there, he says, you, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Guys, it is urgent to share the kingdom of God. Do we see the urgency? Do we believe that when someone dies without Christ, they are going to hell for all eternity? Do we believe that Jesus could come back any time? And our neighbor that doesn't know Christ needs to hear the gospel now? That's the urgency that Jesus is impressing on this man. And so the distractions that he is confronting, the first distraction he's confronting is procrastination. Why aren't you obeying me now? And the second possible distraction he's confronting is the good joys of family or family responsibilities. You've heard me talk about this, but we can make family so important that it replaces the most important thing. Now, now I'm not saying family isn't important. Family is, is hugely important. We have all kinds of commands about that. But we as believers have a new priority. Let, let me use an illustration to explain this that was really helpful for me. When you got married, those of you that are married, when you got married, your family priorities changed, right? Right? When I married Susie, Susie and, and my children now are a higher priority to me than my parents and my, my extended family. They became my extended family. Susie and the kids are my immediate family. That makes sense? We, we'd all understand that. Well, as believers, we're the bride of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. And so we now have a new commitment, a new priority as the bride of Christ to Christ Now, that doesn't eliminate our ability to to love and care for others. I love my parents. I see my parents all the time. My sister's here. I love her. And, And that doesn't negate that, but I have a responsibility to provide for my family, first and foremost, right? So it doesn't eliminate the other priorities. It's setting an order to priorities. And Jesus is is saying, now you're my bride. 
I'm first. Your relationship with me is first. Those other things fall under that umbrella. And you've heard me talk about this. So, so my goal of creating a godly home isn't so I can have a happy life. Happy wife, happy life is, is, is great popular wisdom. It's just not biblical. Because biblically, she's not my goal. Sorry. <laughs> my goal is to pursue God and to have a home that brings glory to Him. Now, because of that, I want to serve my wife. Because of that, I want to love my wife. But it's not so I can be happy. That's self-centered. It's so we can be a light for God in our community. It's so we can together sacrifice for the kingdom of God. See, I'm a firm believer that I'm not going to sacrifice my family for ministry, but my family will sacrifice with me for ministry. And that's so different. That's so to, because we are a family for the purpose of being on mission for God. There is no other purpose if we understand priorities. And so God gave me three kids to refine me probably, to sanctify me in many, many ways, to expose my weaknesses. But so ultimately, we as a family can serve God. And so I can disciple those beautiful young souls to be men and women for God that are about the kingdom. It's an issue of priorities. That's why we follow Jesus. And so when he says, no, don't go bury your father, others can do that, he's confronting a priority and a procrastination that's keeping this man from following Jesus. It's not family first, it's Jesus first. He's showing an urgency to make sure others live and others don't die. And so he's saying following Jesus takes priority over every other relationship, over every obligation, even to the point of sacrificing family ties and obligations at times, if that's needed. It's hard stuff. Man, I love my family. I would die for my family. Would I die for the mission? This is convicting. Third guy comes. This guy comes, comes to Jesus again in 61. Yet another said, Oh, I will follow you, Lord. Now, if I had seen the other two, I don't know that I come at this point. If I, oh, no, this is, this is hard stuff. I will follow you, Lord. But, but, and as soon as we see a but on obeying Jesus, we know there's a problem. And, and junior hires don't laugh, but we need to be no buts Christians. This, no excuses. He says, I'll follow you, Lord, but, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And again, probably thinking about, back to Elisha and Elijah, because Elijah let Elisha go back and say goodbye. But what this represents is a turning back. Well, I'm going to miss them. You know, maybe I need a good farewell party. Let's have a going away party. And this all delays following Christ. But it also is holding on to the past. It's holding on to past attachments. And again, Jesus isn't saying that you, you can't love those people. He's saying those cannot be a priority. And if you're going to delay obeying me for those attachments, for those family functions, for that, that wonderful past that you have, that's a problem. And so Jesus confronts him. And Jesus said, and Jesus said, sorry, Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. 
It's like, what? He wasn't talking about plowing. Who, who knows? But interesting, the Elisha-Elijah story where Elisha did go back, he was out plowing in the field and he left his work to go, to go um, talk to his family. So I think Jesus is actually referring back to that here. But what Jesus is getting at is there needs to be a singular focus on him and his mission that trumps all else. It's the same message as letter B. And so letter C in your notes, we must be committed to have a singular focus on Jesus and his work. No regrets. No looking back wistfully at the good old days. No, we move forward and we serve God. Because the longer we spend looking back, the harder it is to move forward. One author said, if I can find this in my notes, um, he's talking about a car. If you look back only to the road over which you have just come, your car will become a pile of junk metal. There's a lot of truth there. But the, the, the plowing metaphor here, Jesus is using to say, have a singular focus on me. See, the thing with plowing, and I know we don't have a lot of farmers in our midst, but the thing with plowing is to plow a straight furrow, you have to pick a point and you have to focus on that point. And the entire way you focus on that point and you end up with a straight furrow. I think I have a picture of a, a person plowing next. And so it's hard. You have one foot on this plow and you're driving the donkey and, and you leave your, your or you, you have a, a focus straight forward. If you're turning back like this doing it, your furrow is going to go like this. It's going to be all over the place. One joke I heard one time or a story a farmer was telling, he says, yeah, I had a straight point, but it was a cow. So his furrow went, yeah, as the, the cow moved. But it illustrates what we focus on is the direction we go. And Jesus here is saying, don't focus on your past. Don't focus on having great goodbyes. Focus on me. And, and he is talking a dramatic break from family first. And he's talking about sacrificing those family affections. Again, not completely cutting them out of our lives, but making sure our focus is singularly on mission. There are going to be times family doesn't understand why you can't do things because you're coming to church or why you can't do things because you're reaching your neighbor and, and maybe, maybe not even sharing the gospel right then, but doing something kind for your neighbor because your goal is to reach them for Christ. There are going to be times family doesn't understand when you have certain views on certain things. And it's going to get in the way of family. Following Christ is going to get in the way of family. And that's okay. And that's right. A disciple constantly distracted by the past and past associations cannot provide effective service for the kingdom of God. You can't minister with divided interests. So how is your life showing a priority on the gospel? How are we making sure this is our focus, that this is our direction and nothing else? There's no excuses, no buts, nothing getting in the way. Some of the ways I see people doing this, which I just absolutely love, is they'll take every big event in their family's life or in their extended family's life and they'll somehow turn that to the glory of God. So I I love it when I come to a wedding or do a wedding and the couple says, I want the gospel preached. 
I want the God. This is an opportunity. I have people here that will, have never heard the gospel. So Pastor Ron, you take that opportunity with our blessing and you make sure they hear the gospel. That puts chills down my back because it's taking family and putting it under the umbrella of serving to the glory of God. And it's an incredible opportunity. There's nothing like going to a Christ-honoring wedding. I see people do that with births. And so how can you take birth announcements or, or the events surrounding that birth and make sure you're pointing people to God? How can we make sure funerals? And so think of all the big events we go through. How do we make sure funerals are, are clearly sharing the gospel and showing what it means to live a life dedicated to God? Do we take every opportunity to proclaim? Because that's what we're to be about. First and foremost, above all, covering all other things. Two parts to this text today. The first one, Jesus is saying, followers of me need to show extravagant mercy, incredible mercy. The second part says, you've got to show costly commitment. That's what it means to follow Christ. Mercy instead of power and anger and judgment. Commitment instead of pursuing our own desires. I want to end with a story that I read this week about William Borden. He was the heir of a wealthy Chicago family. In 1904 and 1905, at the age of 18, he traveled around the world. This was followed by a brilliant education at Yale and then Princeton Seminary, where he committed his life to seek to win the Muslims in China for Christ. Before he left, he gave away some 500,000. Sounds like a lot to us. Back then, it was worth a lot more. So it would have been worth maybe 10, 15 million in our day. He gave it away because that wasn't his priority. His priority was to, to reach Muslims for Christ. He served at the age of 23 as a trustee of Moody Bible Institute. In 1913, in his 26th year, he left for Egypt and never looked back. It was the final year of his life. In Cairo, he contracted cerebral meningitis and died. But as he lay dying, he scribbled this note, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. It's a man who gave up everything with a singular pursuit to share the gospel with others and to love others. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. This week, next Sunday when you're here, as we talk about missions, say, yeah, this last week I lived that kind of life. No reserve, no regrets, no turning back, no retreat. Let's pray. Lord God, you challenge us that living for you is hard. And Lord, help us to get our priorities in order. And Lord, I pray that if there are things that are messing with our priorities and if there are priorities greater than you, that you would take those away this week or challenge those, confront those this week. And Lord, I know that's a hard thing to pray for our congregation, but I know you are just waiting to bust out of the seams here with what you want to do. And so Lord, challenge us, even if it hurts this week, with anything that's more important than you. Any distractions that are getting in the way of following you. Anything keeping us from spending time with you and your word, from, from sharing the gospel with others, from pursuing you passionately. Lord, teach us to be a merciful, committed people. In Jesus' name.